That's not spit, it's condensation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, we have another installment of Freeway Philharmonic, the series dedicated to speaking with people who have built successful freelance careers and finding out how they made it happen. Today's episode is going to feature Kathy White. Kathy is principal clarinet of the Atlanta Ballet Orchestra, and she is a very active freelancer in the Southeast region. I know her because she's a regular extra musician with the Alabama Symphony, and so I asked if she would be interested in speaking with me about how she built her career. I began the conversation by asking, how did you get your start with freelancing, and how did you work to build your career that you have now? I started freelancing. The first real freelancing I ever had was when I was still in school, and it was 1987, and it was the Alabama Symphony, actually. And I had transferred to University of Alabama just so I could study with Bert Hara, who was the former principal clarinetist in the symphony. And I studied with him while he was teaching there for sabbatical. And while I was studying with him, they had a need in Alabama for some extra players. And I got to play Mahler one. And that was like the first time ever. And it was amazing. And yeah. I loved it. And I got to play a little bit you know, just a little bit here and there when I was still in school. And then I went away to grad school and I did a little bit in grad school, but you know, it's just, it, you're not really freelancing. You're, you're doing some gigs when you're in school, you're getting to do some cool stuff, but that's right, it. Right. So that's not your after career, I, yeah. after, yeah, you're just sort of, you know, you're getting to do some cool stuff on the side that you're really still a full-time student. Right. So then I was in Minnesota um, getting a grad degree, and I was there after school as well. I was just working and teaching, and I had 40 students, and I had, or over 40 actually, and I a uh, part-time job in, at the university, and everybody was great, but I was miserable because I wasn't playing enough. So I thought, you know, I went to music school and performance, so I'm going to do this. I need to take a shot. And Minnesota is very cold and very dark in the winter. Yeah. And I said, I've got to go, I've got to go someplace else. So I just picked a place and I, I had some criteria. I wanted to go to a big, you know, bigger city that had vital music, blah, blah, blah. So I wound up, I settled on Atlanta because I knew like two people in Atlanta, one of which was a former teacher. And because I knew that the principal clarinetist in the symphony was a woman. And I thought that's very interesting because there's not that many of them. So maybe I can go there and play for her and maybe get a little work. Well, so I moved cold to Atlanta. I just packed my car and I wow. moved. And the, the other, well, the teacher that I knew, he moved to Texas. And the other person I knew went away to grad school. So within the first month, there was no one there that I knew. Wow. And I had like no furniture and just what I brought with me in a tiny car. So I was like, I've got to get out there. So the first thing I did was join the union and rejoin it. I had been in the union in Alabama and in Minnesota. But I joined the union in Atlanta, and their union secretary gave me a lot of names of contractors, which was great, and other clarinetists. So I just started off by calling people and just, hey, I know you've got your regular people, but I'm new to town. I just came from grad school. You know, if you need your body, just let me know. So, I, you know, I tried not to pester people, but I did 
I did call a few people. In the meantime, I just worked a day job, you know, a part-time job. And then I got a call for a gig. And so I met all these people. Well, the freelance community, especially back then, was pretty small in Atlanta. I mean, I say small compared to, like, New York or L.A. or something. Sure, sure. Um, so I started meeting people. And as soon as I started meeting people, I started getting work. Because, you know, I had just studied with this great clarinetist, and, and I was getting myself out there, and then people started calling me. Because then also there was just some unforeseen events, like uh, somebody had moved, another person had died, unfortunately. So suddenly I had just, unbeknownst to me, moved at a perfect time to get work. Yeah, wow. So I started working. I, yeah. So that was helpful. But I also I played for uh, Laura Ardan, the principal in Atlanta. I played for her, the assistant principal, who was at that time her husband played for him and just got myself out there and I just started working. But the thing that I did as well is that I realized if I'm going to get work, I can't just be a person who plays, Oh, I'm just a principal player. Oh, I'm just a second player. I can't, oh, I don't play bass. Oh, I don't, I had to make sure I could play everything because one of the first real jobs, well, I say real jobs more, you know, like long-term jobs that got called for was the Atlanta opera. And they asked me if I played bass and I said, Sure. Which I'd only played bass like two or three times. <laughs> and I thought, I've got to work my ass off and make sure I can play the bass. So I borrowed a bass. I didn't even own a bass. I borrowed a bass, worked on it, and got to play Madam Butterfly. And I didn't get fired. And so, yay. So I started getting some work as a bass player. But then, so I just made sure that I auditioned for like all the little regional orchestras around Atlanta because there's a bunch or there were more back then. So, I mean, I played in Huntsville, I played in Augusta, Macon, Greenville, South Carolina, and pretty much if anybody needs anybody, you know, um, I just like either played for their sub list or I just made phone calls. And the next thing you know, I was playing all over the place. I was playing in Charleston, and then I had also called Alabama when I moved back and said, you know, because I'd heard the orchestra before him, and I'm like, hey, you remember me? I used to play, and I went and played for Danny Granados who was the principal at that time, and, you know, then I got on that sub list again. So I just kind of worked my way around, and I just I just told people, look, I'm not here to usurp anybody. I just want to play. So if you need somebody extra, call me. So I was just, you know, trying to be as courteous and professional, but also just getting my name out there. I made a quick note that it sounds like she has no problem playing for other people, and I asked her if she could talk about why she feels like that's such a good idea. I mean, it was nerve-wracking, but it was. But in a way, I had just come from grad school. I mean, I just studied with like one of the toughest teachers, well, the toughest teacher I've ever had, who's kind of notorious for being a great player, but also being kind of a hard ass. And uh, and I think I was just like ready for anything after studying with him. But I also knew that my intention. I went into it knowing I don't want to make anybody angry. I don't want to come in and take over the world. I really just, I left everything I knew, all my safe comfort zones, because I just wanted to play. And I don't care where or what, I just want to play. So I just went out there and let people know, yes, I can play E-flat. Yes, I'll play this. 
Um, I even, when I first moved here, I played in community bands, two community bands, just to keep my chops up. So while I was doing that, I also took, I auditioned for a, there was a competition in town. I auditioned for that just for fun um, or, you know, did the competition just to see. And it, it was an experience. That's all I'll say. <laughs> but um, I did that. And then I just, yeah, I called another clarinet player and kind of bugged her a little bit. And, and she was very nice. And one day she got a call for a gig she didn't want to do, and she just sent it my way. And then I played for Laura. And then Laura sent me, Laura Ardan sent me students and recommended me and even had me play in the Atlanta Symphony after I played for her. So I think just being willing to do whatever and just being, you know, friendly and like, hey, I, I'm not here for anything other than just in case you need somebody, um, but making sure I can play everything. Next, I wanted to know that when she contacts people to try and play for them, is she upfront about her desire to sub with that particular group, or does she play for them and hope that they like her enough to hire her? Yeah, for some of the groups, they had clear-cut sub-auditions, and those were in the little local union paper in Atlanta. It would say there is a sub-audition for Green, or maybe I think Greenville, South Carolina might have been word of mouth because that's out of our range. But, like, there was a Rome, Georgia, there was something in Columbus or Macon, and so I just, I saw that there was a sub-audition, so I just signed up and took the audition. But other people, like Laura or even Danny Granados, I just called up and said, hey, would it be possible for me to play for you and see if you have any tips or whatever, basically almost like take a coaching or a lesson. Right. And I didn't, and I said, I, I, and I just told them, I said, you know, I said, I just want to play. I'm just looking to play. And I didn't say, please hire me in your orchestra, because I thought my playing will probably speak louder than words, you know, and hopefully if they like it, they'll have me, and if they don't, they won't. So my teacher was very hardcore about not having students in the orchestra, in Minnesota Orchestra. So I didn't expect anything. I just said, hey, it just would be really my privilege to play for you, and if you have any suggestions, great. And they were all very kind, and they let me play. And actually, Danny put me in as, tried to put me in as many um, unfriendly rooms as possible so he could really hear me. He made me play on really thick carpet. He said, oh, if you can sound good in here, you can sound anywhere. So, And we, we laughed about that for years later. But, um, you know, so I just I did whatever they wanted and just played, and, and they were great. And then people started calling me. I mentioned here that I really liked the attitude she had about having the desire to put herself out there while also having no expectations toward the outcome of those actions. It didn't really sound to me like she felt that she was owed any work just because she reached out for it. No, I don't. I, I'm old school, <laughs> obviously, because um, I'm older, but also because I grew up in a generation where there was, there was no entitlement. It was like, you pay your dues or we won't even deal with you. I mean, I played with David Pandolfi when I was 20 years old, and I was terrified to even turn around. And I love him, you know, and he's the best. He's awesome. But I was scared to death of him when I was 20. I can understand you know? that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was terrified. And, I mean, it was – and I – and my te my own teacher was telling me, I'm taking a huge risk having you here. You know, this was Alabama. He never had me in Minnesota Orchestra. But when he was in Alabama, he said, you know, it, don't embarrass me. Don't – basically, if you screw up. I will, you know, I, I may not even teach you anymore. I mean, he was very hardcore. So I never had any expectations for anything. And I was actually pleasantly surprised when I started getting work in Atlanta. And yeah. then it just went from there. And then I won the ballet job. And then I got, you know, so.
During my time in undergraduate school, my teacher, Michael Anderson, told me that when you are referred a gig by someone else, you are not only representing you, but you're also representing the person that referred you. I asked Kathy what kinds of things she thought would go into a player representing themselves well besides just playing well at the job. Oh, well, I think because I had such a hardcore teacher and who would tell me, don't take that audition because you might embarrass me. I mean, it's kind of funny now, but at the time it was pretty traumatic. But I appreciate it because it made me think this isn't just about me. I have to figure out how if I'm going to sub in a brand new group, I don't want to stick out even now. I want to come in and blend in. If that means listening to how they play, if they play a little ahead of the beat, a little behind the beat, you know, what they do, try to blend in with my section mates, with the orchestra, but really almost be invisible because it's not my job to come in. I didn't win the job, you know. I didn't come in. I'm not the new star principal clarinet of XYZ Orchestra. I'm here to fulfill a need they have for more, you know, for usually for extra players or if, I'm playing bass clarinet. I'm not star, but I'm an important part. Yeah. So I want to come in and sound the best that I can and fit in as well as I can. So um, the best thing to do is be early, you know, and I mean, I'm always one of the first people there to any gig I do. I'm early. I'm prepared. I try to be friendly and I try to be, I try to sound good. And so it's not just, if I sound bad and I've come in, I've had to come in with Charleston Symphony at the very last minute and just read a concert down, like they call me at noon, I drove five hours and I played a concert. And I had to, on pieces I'd never played before. And my goal was to not step on it because the audience member that paid all this money doesn't care that, oh, I just drove and did all these great things to help them out. They care that, oh God, what happened to the clarinet? What is that? Right, yeah. You know? So I always feel like the audience doesn't know if I'm having a bad day. They don't know if I'm a sub, they don't know. Unless I'm there a lot, they might know I'm a sub, but they probably don't. So it's really not about me. It's about the music and about the orchestra and just fitting in and being part of a whole. Because it's, you know, it's a whole microcosm working in an orchestra. I'm, you know, if I wanted to be a, a superstar, I'd be a soloist. Right. But I'm not. You know, I enjoy being part of a whole. And That's I want well, to do it the best that I can. At one point during my time here, there was a rehearsal of Tombeau de Couperon with the Alabama Symphony Orchestra, where Kathy was playing second clarinet with our principal clarinet, Kathleen Costello, playing the first part. Kathleen got sick and had to miss one rehearsal in order to rest for the concert that night, so Kathy White moved up and played the first part on that rehearsal. I remember thinking to myself, man, she sounds great. I would certainly understand it if she was struggling, as that's not the part she prepared, but that's not the case. I recounted that story with Kathy and then asked her how she feels she is able to maintain playing at such a high level on all the different instruments and parts that she has to play. Well, and I don't mean to sound like I'm bashing my teacher because what I'm about to say in addition to what I've already said, but he was a lot. I'll just say that. And he he was very young. He was only two years older than me. So there was a little bit of immaturity going on and a little bit of hero worship on my end. You know, so this was here's somebody who's nearly my age, who's done these amazing things. And I'm still in school, you know, trying to figure out orchestra pieces that I don't know. And so but he had a very he was a principal player from day one. I mean, he soloed with Los Angeles when he was 10. Okay. I mean, he was like just an absolute child prodigy. So anyway. So that leaves a little bit to be desired maybe for teaching. But the reason I say that is because 
he really kind of judged people. He goes, well, you know, people that play auxiliaries aren't really that great of players. And what he was, what he meant was they're good players, but they're not, they can't play principal in his mind. Now that's his mind. And I just remember thinking, I don't, I don't buy that for a second. I don't buy that for a second. If you practice anything that you're passionate about, you should be able to do it well. And I just don't, I, I, so I kind of learned to play everything despite him in a way. It sounds awful, but I kind of did. But I also, it was more that I wanted to work. I wanted to play. I meant it. I was like, I'm not going to say, oh, I want to play, but oh, I don't really, I don't really do that. I thought, oh, I need to do that because I'm a clarinet. I don't play saxophone. I don't play flute. I don't do the show doubles, but I need to be the best at my instrument family that I can. So I already had played E-flat for years. I was stuck on E-flat when I was a freshman in college. So I had a lot of E-flat experience, but I didn't have as much bass experience. So it was just on-the-job training, and then I finally bought my own bass, and I just I found I really enjoyed it because you listen differently. At each one, I feel like principal, second, E-flat, and bass are all completely separate skills. Well, not completely, but they're, they have very different roles, and they have you have a different skill set to do each one. And I found that it's not like a punishment to play second. It's not a punishment to play an auxiliary. There's some really cool stuff about doing each of those things. And I found I really enjoyed playing bass because I love all the low stuff. And it's just it's just so cool. When you play a soprano instrument, you know, how often do you really think about the low lines? I mean, you're busy doing your, you know, your upper lines. Right. But when you really, all of a sudden, I'm playing with cellos and I'm playing with horns and I'm playing with basses. You know, it's just, it's like, wow, this is a whole other level or layer that I've listened to, but I didn't really, really listen to, and I love it. And bassoon, I play with bassoon. I might as well be a bassoon. Right. For as often as the bassoon play together. And that's very cool to me. I really enjoy it. So really, it was because I like them all. I don't find them. I mean, I'm like one of the only clarinetists that likes to play the basset horn. If you say basset horn, most clarinetists, they wrinkle their nose up and go, oh, God, uh," you know. They're they're notoriously funky. They're hard to play in tune. I love it. I'm like, bring it on. I don't have one, but if I had a spare, you know, 12,000 laying around, I'd buy one tomorrow because I just think it's so much fun to play. It's a great challenge. I just like the challenge of doing each one in its own little quirks and, and challenges. I wanted to dig in a little deeper here and see if there was any specific practice regimen she went through in order to have good facility on all her instruments, or if she just changed her mindset depending on the gig she was playing. Just everything, like just the basic mechanics the same way. It's just, it's just you know, the way you woodshed. You know, you just put the time in. But mentally, when I play principal, I'm a lot more out there. It's like ego that's not in you know ego that's not in my playing when i play second comes in because you have to have that amount of fearlessness to play principal right you know just to sit down and put it out there and oh i've got solos i can't just sit here and be like oh little me i'm nobody i'm you know i'm a sub i'm this i'm that no i have to like put you know so when i play in the ballet i think i play more aggressively because it's my orchestra and because I'm playing principal. And I mean aggressive in the way that I feel, you know, confident playing. Right. When I'm playing second, it's more I'm I'm listening to different people. I'm I'm really listening hard to the principal player 
but I'm also listening to the inner voices more. And so then when I play E flat, that's more like walking off a cliff every time you play it. So that's like, okay, this is really scary to play high notes really soft, but I have to because it's an E flat clarinet and you can't hide. So I just have to have the, the calm in my mind. I have to like mentally focus in a different way of just like, I have to put this out there and it has to be right. So just do it, like just jump off that cliff. And then with bass, it's just more of a, okay, just, you know, and it's really the only thing that's really mechanically different is just the embouchure changes. So, you know, I have to put extra protection on my teeth for E-flat. For bass, I have to relax my face more. You know, I have to stretch my hands out a little bit before I play it because I get, you know, my hands get kind of tired. So mechanically, the only differences are really just adjusting slight physical things. But mentally, I have to put on a different hat, if that makes sense. I took a second to note that I was really inspired by how much she has been willing to put herself out there at all stages in her life. Whether it was putting herself out there by just moving cold turkey to Atlanta or cold calling people trying to get her name around, or just putting herself out there by working really hard and playing really well, she clearly has a theme of being fearless in her life. To close out the conversation, I asked her where she thinks that fearlessness came from. Well, um, I just know that for me, I was getting really, I mean, part of it was sunlight affective disorder, I think, but in Minnesota, but another part of it was I have to do this. I don't have a choice. I had a director at an honor band years ago in high school say, look, if you can do anything else, you need to do it. But if music is your passion and your calling, you need to do it 100%. And that voice has stayed with me because it's like, I can't, I will not be able to do anything well if I don't just go for it. Right. So for me, it was like, I don't have a choice. I could live very comfortably and have a pension and have, you know, retirement money and, and work, you know, working for the University of Minnesota is a very good place to work. And teaching was good income, but I was not happy. I wasn't playing. And it, that was just not acceptable. So that's why I uprooted my whole life. And now that's the thing that just keeps me going is I still love it. Yeah. And I just want to do it, you know, and I just want to do it well. I don't care. I'm not competing with other people. You know, a lot of people are going to compete with you, whether, you, you know, even just in a regular gig, you know, it's just going to be a lot of little things and little passive aggressive things. Not always, not luckily, not where the places I play now, but, you know, just in past and in other gigs. But but I'm not competing with anybody. I'm here to make sure I do the best job that I can do for me and for the people I work with. Because for me, it's about the music and about the colleagues. And as long as I have those two things are great, then I'm good. Yeah, I'm not a fearless person, or I haven't been my whole life, but when I'm really passionate about something, you better believe it. Very thankful to Kathy for giving of her time and sharing her thoughts about building a freelance career. I recently listened to a podcast with Anthony McGill, principal clarinet with the New York Philharmonic, where he relayed a story about a masterclass he attended when he was 11. He said it was a very memorable moment in his life when the person giving the class said, if you can do anything else in life, do it. But if you love music, do it 100%. I thought, wow. That's almost exactly the same thing Kathy said in the conversation I had with her. I only say that because I think it's important to note that just because Kathy is not the principal clarinet of the New York Philharmonic does not mean that her thoughts and wisdom is no less valuable or inspiring. 
There is a lot we can learn from all the musicians around us, and I can think of no better example than this episode with Kathy White. I think that's going to be it for this episode. Again, I want to thank Kathy White for taking the time to talk to me. And as always, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening. See you next time.